The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. This is one of the great purposes of salvation, namely that believers may bring forth fruit unto God. We have considered that fruit in previous studies as converts, lives led to the Lord through our ministry, as Paul might have spoken of Timothy as the fruit of his ministry. We have spoken of fruit as the character of Christ developed in the personality alongside the nature which we have received from our father Adam. And we now consider in this study fruit bearing as the development of our conduct in day-by-day Christian living. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word, as taught by Dr. Barnhouse, is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Christian Conduct. If you are in the military, you could be disciplined or face a court-martial if you are charged with conduct unbecoming an officer. Unfortunately, through our sin and disobedience, we often give the world an opportunity to charge us with conduct unbecoming a Christian. Unbelievers will evaluate Christianity and Jesus Christ by examining the lives of His followers. How can we draw people to the Lord by the way we conduct our daily lives? Let's find out as today we turn to Romans chapter 7 and verse 4. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Christian Conduct. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto Thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. Thou art our God, and the thought of Thee causes our hearts to fling out the banners of joy because of all that Thou art and of all that Thou dost daily reveal Thyself to be. Bless the going forth of Thy word in this hour, and may it find lodgment in many hearts. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are studying in Romans 7, 4, and... Come to this verse in order that we may bring forth fruit unto God. Alongside this text in Romans 7, 4, which says that the purpose of our union with Christ is in order that we may bring forth fruit unto God, we place another text taken from the epistle to the Galatians. The apostle has been telling the Galatians of what they were by nature. He describes the natural fruit of the tree of Adam. Now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, 
drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, says Paul, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now it is important that we accept God's analysis of the soil of our hearts, the soil in which the new life of Christ is planted. We have seen in studying the fourth chapter that the nature of Abraham's faith was that he believed that God could bring life out of death. And this is ever the nature of true faith. And it is the explanation of the production of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. For the quotation now continues in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, the first thing of importance to notice in this verse is the number of the verb. For it does not read, the fruits of the Spirit are, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Now, we can see how incongruous this is if we give it a parallel sentence. Suppose I should say, the fruit of California is oranges, apples, peaches, plums, pears, etc. It would be pointed out that I should have said, not the fruit is, but the fruits of California are oranges, apples, etc. Well, how then can we say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so on? The answer is that the fruit of the Spirit is not like a single apple upon a stem, but like a bunch of grapes in one cluster. The Bible does not teach that the Lord will grow the fruit of love in one life, the fruit of joy in another life, and the fruit of peace in still another. Oh, thank God, the entire cluster is to be expected as the fruitage of a life that is yielded to the Lord. The first fruit of this cluster is love. Now, this, of course, is not human love, but divine love. The very name of God is love. And it could not be possible to make us partakers of the divine nature without that essential characteristic of the divine being becoming manifest in our lives. Now, the essential element of the Adamic nature is selfishness. The key sin that explains all other sins is that of the desire to exalt self. We remember in Isaiah 53, 6, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. Now, when a man turns to his own way, he has turned from God's way. He has left the way of divine love for the way of human selfishness. The contenders for the throne of life and power are God and ego. Their rule is mutually exclusive. God will never share his throne with ego. And the nature of ego is to demand all and to push to exclude any power that is alien to its rule. Life is theocratic or autocratic. You are dominated by God or self. Now, how could Christ be in us and not act like himself? Immediately, the question will arise in the minds of some concerning those who are believers and in whom Christ has come to dwell, but who show no evidences of the life of Christ. I confess to a dilemma 
if I approach this question from the point of view of human experience. But the difficulty disappears when faced in the light of the word of God. Man looketh upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. We must attempt to forsake the human viewpoint and to adopt the divine. Some months ago, I was speaking with one of our outstanding Christian leaders, president of one of the great Bible institutes of this country. I asked him what proportion of our population he thought was truly saved, saying that I sometimes thought that there was a very small number, even a small percentage of church members, while at other times I thought there was a very great number. He answered that he understood my difficulty and that he had gone through the same thought processes. Yes, if we look only at the outward appearance, we might come to the conclusion that only a very small minority of professing Christians are possessing Christians. But the Lord Jesus Christ pointed out to his disciples that some of his wheat looked so much like tares that they could never distinguish between the two and that therefore the differentiation must be left to God. Now I know that I must be content to let the matter rest with God, though at times I may be impatient to see more of the fruitage of the Spirit in the lives of all believers, as I would like to see more fruitage in my own life. When we see things that hurt us, we must understand that others are seeing similar things in our lives, and that the very presence of the old life and its manifestations should call us to renewed surrender to the presence of the Holy Spirit, in order that the fruit of the Spirit might truly take root and flourish within us. We must always take into consideration the background of those whom we meet in the Christian life and be thankful unto God for even the slightest fruit that we see in any individual, since the Adamic nature has the power to camouflage itself to such a great extent and to live like the chameleon taking on the color of its surroundings. This is why all judgment must be left to the Lord and why we ourselves are so incapable of forming a right judgment, even in connection with judgment of our own hearts. Now, one of the first characteristics of the love of Christ, which will be the fruit of the Spirit within the life of the believer, will be the willingness to concentrate upon one's own problems and to form the minimum of judgment upon those with whom we come in contact. So let us then consider the problem only with reference to self. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Is it true in my life, we must ask ourselves? And the next questions that will come to mind are, what is love? And how does love manifest itself? And the word of God teaches us, love suffereth long and is kind. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. Love envieth not. Love does not boast. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave itself unseemly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not easily provoked. Love thinketh no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth. Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never faileth. Now these words are very familiar, but if we apply them to common situations in life, we shall see what they mean. Love is unselfish. Love is interested in other people, but not in gossip about them. Love thinks of the life and problems of others and tries to say the word and perform the act that will make life a little happier for the next man. 
Love is not envious when someone else gets a promotion, wins a prize, makes a good bargain. Love is glad when oil is discovered on another man's property. Love is not concerned about its own achievements and doesn't go around talking about them. Love leaves statistics to God. Love is genuinely interested in the other fellow's job and wants to know how he's getting along. Love is happy in the other man's success and grieved at his losses or failures. Love never profits knowingly by another's loss. Love does not lose its temper. Love is not hasty. Love does not snap at others. Love puts the best possible interpretation on words and happenings. Love will never think the worst of others. Love is never glad when others get into trouble. Love is never happy about sin. Love is always glad about truth. Love will stand anything. Love is never suspicious. Love always wants the best. Love will take any affront. I have seen love at work in many Christian lives. I've seen a beautiful young woman take hold of the arm of a leper in a missionary hospital and give not only injections, but a pat of sympathy to the men patients and a caress of gentleness to the women. I have seen men quietly turn their back on success and modest fortune to go to the dark places of the world to live for Christ. That is love. I think that the acts of Christian love that have impressed me most are those of people who've been kind to me when they could have been otherwise. I was deeply impressed some time ago by the words of a member of my church. He was chairman of a committee to do some work in connection with the meeting. When it was over, we were talking about some of the details, and he said to me, there was a moment when there could have been a blow-up, for you spoke rather sharply to me, and I'm, I'm not used to being treated like a lackey. I thought it best, however, he said, to forget about it. You know, I, I was stunned for a moment, and I tried to recall what I'd said or how I had acted that had given him that impression. There was a rush in my heart of combined feelings. As I was sorrowfully penitent for my evident lack of love that had allowed him to get such an impression, and of profound gratitude to God that there had been love in this man's heart which had enabled him to overlook the careless rudeness on my part. Now I use this illustration because it shows that it's possible to be so busy with things that one forgets persons and thus falls into a lack of love. And it also shows that when love refuses to take offense, there is the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit and his fruit in lives. I don't suppose that I shall ever meet that man again as long as I live without remembering that I once said something that could have hurt him, and he refused to be hurt. Now I try to think of something nice that I can do for him. And the memory of what happened to him has made me appraise all of my attitude towards all men that I meet in Christian work. Then in addition to the fact that God says the fruit of the Spirit is love, we read that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. What is joy? Joy is the deep flowing satisfaction of knowing that the Lord does all things well and that you are riding on the crest of his will. It must be sharply distinguished from happiness. Happiness is a pagan word that corresponds to the Latin fortuna, which has given us our word fortune, the equivalent of chance. Perhaps 
If things happen the way we would like them to happen, then we would be happy. Or, mayhaps, if they happened otherwise, we would be unhappy. <laughs> the old Germanic root would correspond to our modern slang of getting the brakes, of chance, of luck. How can we think of chance or luck when we know all that the Word of God teaches us about the eternal plan of God and the fulfillment of His providence? Luck and providence are mutually exclusive. Paul is able to speak of himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It was certain that he or any true believer in Christ would be drawn into the sufferings of Christ, but there would be the glorious joy of knowing that he was in the place of the Lord's will and therefore in the place of joy. Then again, we read in this passage that the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Now, in this word, we must distinguish between that which is peace with God and that which is the peace of God. We noted this somewhat when we were dealing with the fifth chapter. But here again, it's necessary to point out the distinction. For it is the peace of God, which is the fruit of the Spirit here. The peace with God is that which has been provided at the cross through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the peace of God is that which comes from the Spirit, controlling our being and our circumstances. A captain of a submarine told me once that the worst storm which ever was upon the ocean was never more than 50 feet deep. The gales might rip across the Atlantic with waves a hundred feet high, dashing over the bridge of the giant ocean liners. Yet, down underneath the surface, the water was as calm as a pond on a sunny day in June. And thus, the peace of God which passeth all understanding keeps our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus in the midst of all the storms and perils which may come to us. Then again, we read that the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. We're also reminded that the Scripture tells us that long-suffering is a product of love, since love suffereth long and is kind. But long-suffering is more than patience. Patience might be long-waiting without suffering. But long-suffering is long-waiting with suffering, not necessarily the suffering of the body, for very frequently the sufferings of the heart are far greater than any suffering of the body. Only those who've seen broken-hearted people are able to realize this. The anguish may be of the mind and heart as well as that of the body, but there is nonetheless suffering, and at times its length seems to be unending. The Holy Spirit enables the believer to endure and keep on enduring. The believer in whom the Spirit is bearing his fruit need not give way to spiritual fainting. There is no giving up the race with the believer. Not only does he mount up with wings as eagles, he runs and is not weary. He walks and he does not faint. This is the promise of God. Then again, we read the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Now, this is a quality that is so desirable that our forebears adopted it to speak of the upper classes as gentlefolk. A man and a woman had as a high title of regard the name gentleman or gentlewoman. Actions that are gentle are soft and loving. Gentleness is the exclusion of rudeness. There is no untoward haste in gentleness. Gentleness does not bump other people out of the way. Gentleness 
handles the emotions of others with the same tenderness that one would use in handling a baby. Gentleness is composed of equal parts of love, kindness, courtesy, and tenderness. Gentleness, like Christ, is full of compassion. Then the text says the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. There is an innate solidity to this word goodness. Or it might seem trite to say that a man who is good is not bad. But many will understand what is meant by that statement. Goodness is the quality of loving righteousness, holiness, and mercy. In goodness, there is a total lack of malice. There is a positive outflow of well-wishing and right thinking that characterizes goodness. It is a title which Christ claimed as divine. There is one good, God alone. But since we have been made partakers of the divine nature, that quality begins to show its presence in us. And even now, in the midst of an evil world, we are marked out by the fact that through the Holy Spirit, we are good. Then again, the next line says the fruit of the Spirit is faith. Or perhaps more correctly, the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. In faithfulness, there is honor. Faith's word is as good as its bond. Faithfulness keeps its appointments. Faithfulness honors its notes. Faithfulness pays its bills on time. Faithfulness is common honesty. Faithfulness delivers 16 ounces to the pound. Faithfulness gives 60 minutes work for the hour's pay. Faithfulness doesn't watch the clock. Faithfulness will be there in the hour of need. Faithfulness is steady. Faithfulness is not dependent on the fickleness of worldly success. Faithfulness doesn't follow the crowds. Faithfulness never works by whim. Faithfulness is the rock to which hope can cling. Faithfulness is not a fair-weather friend. Faithfulness has a backbone. And then again, the next line says the fruit of the Spirit is meekness. There are many who consider meekness as something weak and unmanly. But meekness is in reality the strength of strong conviction in action. For meekness is a vertical virtue and not a horizontal one. Meekness is not the Casper milk toast of the comic strips who waits for hours in the rain before concluding that a friend is not going to keep an appointment. Meekness is something quite different. Meekness is bowing low before God. Meekness is recognizing that man is a creature and that God is the creator and acting accordingly at all times. Meekness gets so low before God that the meek man can stand high before men. Meekness can take its shoes off before a burning bush and then stalk the halls of Pharaoh, crying, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. Then again we read, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Our King James Version is at fault in using the word temperance. The fruit of the Spirit is the control of self. This does not mean that self is able to control itself. But the Spirit teaches self its own incapacities and leads it to the new mastery of the power of God in the life. Self-control does not go to excesses in any direction. Self-control has both an accelerator and brakes and knows how to use both. Self-control stays on the highway and drives safely. 
Self-control puts self in the seat of the servant and Christ on the throne of lordship. Now is it any wonder that this glorious cluster of the fruit of the Spirit is set forth as being an expression of the goal of the present life of Christ in the believer? Our text in Romans has shown us that the purpose of our union with Christ is that we might bring forth fruit unto God. And in our text in Galatians, we have seen what this fruit is. So let us labor to be the kind of vineyard dressers who can produce lives which are to the praise of the glory of the grace of our God. Let us strive to comprehend our place in Christ so that we may yield to his dominion and be the field where the Spirit can grow this precious fruit. And our God, we pray thee that the Holy Spirit shall take the burden of this word to each heart and use it to thine honor and thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It is impossible to live a godly Christian life by human self-effort. We must believe in the God who is able to bring life out of our dead hearts and live in daily reliance on the Holy Spirit. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled Christian Conduct. Now you can listen to additional Bible teaching by Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Request Christian Conduct or simply ask for message number R7-8. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled The Cost of Discipleship. Although salvation is a free gift of God, it does not come cheaply. It costs Jesus His life to redeem us, and it will cost us something if we are serious about submitting to His Lordship. This free booklet will show you that as pilgrims in this life, we must count the cost of discipleship, learn to travel light, and realize that following Jesus radically changes our relationships. Discipleship is demanding, but the Lord promises that He is always with you. Ask for your free copy of The Cost of Discipleship when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support or further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.